Good evening again. It's good to have you back. All right, so we're going to be studying from 1 Timothy chapter 2 this evening. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll start with the first eight verses of chapter 2, 1 Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher, and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. There are many ways that worshipers have been called together for purpose over the centuries. If we look at how um, Judaism worships, um, how they worship to today, they have what's called uh, berechu. Uh, berechu is someone who calls people together uh, to prayer, to services, usually around uh, the recitation of the Shema, uh, of the uh, declaration of the one and only God. Muslims even have a call to prayer as well uh, and a call to prayer there is called an adhan, um, and it's called out by the muezzin from the mosque five times a day, and it's a, a message, a call to worshipers, um, and it's traditionally done from the minaret, which are those towers around mosques, um, and it's used to summon the Muslims together for prayer, um, and it's used to be done by song, um, and now it's done over loudspeakers. Um, so you go and you visit a Muslim country, you'll hear it five times a day. At various times, there's a very specific calendar that they use um, for these worship services. But those are calls to prayers. And as studying this, I came across, actually, Christians also have a way to call to prayer. Um, and it's bell towers. It's the, the bells ringing from church towers that would be rung typically at 6 in the morning, at noon, and again at 6 at night. And if you're curious as to why 6 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m., um, there's actually a passage in Psalm 55, verses 16 and 17. Um, and that's where he says, But I called to God, at Psalm 55, verses 16 and 17. But I called to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. And so early Christians took that to say, Oh, well, let's ring the bell early for the morning at noon and again in the evening at 6 p.m. So a nice symmetry to it.
But again, they started ringing the bell so that Christians would, would think, what am I doing? And they would say, ah, I need to pray. I need to come together. And they would realize that that's a call to prayer. Now, these are all kind of relatively modern um, for, for this sense. But in 1 Timothy, um, Paul is writing a letter, and he is making and issuing a call to prayer. What he's doing in these letters is he's encouraging Timothy to be a leader, to, to rally Christians, to rally believers. And there's so much in both of these letters that's important for us. And this is our call to prayer, specifically for men in the congregation to come together and to pray. It's a call that we hear, that we recognize, and that we respond to in how we worship. What is the purpose of a call to prayer? Whether it's um, these uh, examples that we've seen from uh, Judaism or the examples that we see from the Muslim faith or even Christianity today, what is the, the purpose of a call to prayer? Why is, Tim, why is Paul writing to Timothy in this note and stressing the purpose, the reason, the rationale for coming together in prayer? Why pray together? And what is the purpose of prayer? And let's take a look at that from this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 this evening. First and foremost, we see that the, the purpose of a call to prayer is unity, is working together. Imagine a body that's working in different directions. Imagine working at odds with each other. And in fact, as we see at the end of this passage, we're called to not have strife, to not have divisions or dissensions within the body, but called ultimately to be unified in our purpose. And here, Paul doesn't hedge any bets. He doesn't say, oh, well, it's not really uh, just for petitions, or it's not really just for thanksgivings. He has it all here in this inclusion. He says, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. These are four different flavors, if you will, of prayer. Four different aspects, four different facets of the jewel that is prayer. And they represent the four approaches that we can use. The supplications that we come and we ask for God, for the prayers that we bring before God, that we present to him, uh, the intercessions where we ask for his intervention and his assistance, and for thanksgivings. And we see thanksgiving as a replete message throughout the New Testament message, the New Testament. But they're all speaking to God. They're all addressing God. They're different ways of bringing those messages, bringing those requests, bringing those pleas and those thanks to God, all covered in the avenue of prayer. So we see that these are the ways that we approach God. These are the four mechanisms that Paul highlights in his letter to Timothy. But what is the purpose of prayer? Not what is the goal, but what is the purpose? Why have a call to prayer? What is the intent? Well, we, we see where we're initially told. We're told to pray for all men, to pray for everyone. There's no one that should be excluded from our prayers. As we see numerous places in the New Testament, we are to pray for our enemies, for those who despitefully use us. Right? And as we talked about in the adult class this morning, that's a very difficult thing to do, to really turn your face, turn your other cheek, and pray for your enemies. But it's what we're called to do. We're called not only to pray uh, for beh on behalf of all, but we're to pray for kings and for those in positions of authority, high positions. And it's a focus there on those who are in power, on those who have authority and who exercise it over us. 
Now, it's regardless of any political persuasion or party. It's regardless of any history that the ruler might have. Just think of when this letter was written. It was written in the middle of the Roman Empire. And we think today how difficult we have it, right? How much we struggle. We see the political strife that we have in our, in our nation today. And we think, oh, this is, this is the worst. It's terrible. And it is bad. Don't get me wrong. But let's put it in a little perspective. And imagine living in a world where Christians are persecuted by the government, right? And yet Paul is imploring Timothy to pray for those who are in power, right? And you notice that he doesn't pray that those might suddenly see the light, right? But he prays for what? For what purpose does he pray for those who are in power? He's asking for them to have wisdom, to have wisdom in how they rule and how they exercise that power over everybody, over us as Christians and over all men. And ultimately our aim is called to be living a quiet life, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I don't know about you, but that makes me think of something like Thoreau, right? Living out in the woods, just nice and quiet on the nice serene scent. And that's exactly the picture that Paul is painting here. That is what our life, our spiritual life should be like. And that's the prayer that he is saying we should lead, that we should ask God to give these leaders, these men in authority, the wisdom to give us the quiet, tranquil life. But ultimately, we live it in all godliness and dignity. Now, it's easily, easy to overlook the godliness and dignity as two common words, right? But when you read through this passage, it's important to realize here that the word dignity only occurs three times in the New Testament. It's a very, very unused word, right? So when we look at it, we understand what the term dignity is. But I think there's a bigger picture if we look at the way that the word is used in other places in the New Testament. So this first place that we've seen it used is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm here in dignity in verse 2. But let's turn over one chapter to chapter 3 and verse 4. Now one of the things that the book of 1 Timothy is known for is being one of the two places where you see the qualifications for elders and deacons. The qualifications are laid out here in 1 Timothy, and they're also laid out in Titus. So it's very important to realize that the context here is not only after he's making this entreaty in chapter 2, and then he speaks about the behavior of women in service in the end of chapter 2, and then he moves on to overseers and deacons, to elders and to deacons in chapter 3. And in fact, if we look at chapter 3 and verse 4, we read, and a qualification for an overseer, uh, starting in verse 2, continuing through 3 and into 4, where he says, The uh, overseer must be one who manages his own, his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And so we see one of the descriptions of a person who has dignity and has control over his family is here who's a, a spiritually mature, an older gentleman who understands how to manage his own household. And I think there's a clear, uh, clear connection between uh, praying for those who are in authority and the, the requirements for the overseers here in chapter 3. And I think there's a very clear intentional connection between the dignity of praying for overseers and the dignity of praying for those who are in authority, positions of authority. And so it's easy to sit here and think, well, that's the message is for those who are older, who have 
um, experience. But let's turn over a little bit to Titus chapter 2 and verse 7. Titus chapter 2 and verse 7. Titus 2 and 7. And here we see a description of requirements for younger men, for those who are younger in the faith. And it says, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity uh, in doctrine and dignified. So here we see the whole spectrum of age, not only older but also younger, that we're called to live a life of dignity. So these three places where the word is used here in 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 3, and in Titus verse 2, chapter 2 and verse 7, we see the whole spectrum of dignity as life that governs the life of a Christian. It's the aspect of life that we're called to have as followers of him. And yet we're called to pray here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 for those who have authority so that we can live this life in all godliness and dignity. And ultimately, that is the result of the prayers that we're called to lead, to be pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And it says here, very importantly, that he wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. And here they're, they're equal, they're equivalent, to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And a knowledge of the truth here is an active knowledge of the truth, not an intellectual and passive knowledge of the truth. But we see what's emphasized here as well, um, that in verse 5, there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And if we turn over to Hebrews chapter six, chapter 8, excuse me, and verse 6. Hebrews 8 and verse 6. We see, but now he, in the speaking of Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is the, also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Hebrews 8 and 6. So ultimately, Christ is the one mediator between God and man. And as such, he is the one to whom um, we bring our message. And the one who is responsible for passing um, on to God the communications that we give him here. And ultimately, that is the one conduit we have through prayer. And as we see in elsewhere in the scriptures, um, we are called to pray in Christ's name, um, using his authority, again, emphasizing the fact and the role of mediator between us and the Father. Paul himself here in this passage continues by saying that he was appointed a preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Realizing that Timothy himself was a Gentile, he wasn't speaking just to Timothy, but he was speaking to the entire Gentile nation, to everyone who was outside of the Jewish folk. So we see here as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith, we, we are called to listen and to hear the message that Paul pleads with us to praise God, but also to bring entreaties to him for the leaders, for those who are in positions of power and authority. And finally, in chapter uh, 2 and verse 8, he says, And therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting holy hands without wrath and dissension. Let's turn over briefly to the book of James, chapter 4. 
I think in James chapter 4 and verse 8, we see the same application of spiritual reality with the physical reality that we're familiar with. In chapter 2 of 1 Timothy in verse 8, he says to lift holy hands without wrath and dissension. Is he speaking about literally holding up hands as Moses did? Or is he speaking in a spiritual sense for holding up spiritual clean hands? And I think James 4 and verse 8 gives us that sight, that insight that we need to understand. In verse 8 of chapter 4 of James, we read, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here we see that, in fact, hands and hearts go together. And they are, in fact, both agents of action, agents of movement, agents of decisiveness in someone's life. Understanding that your hands ultimately exercise what your heart wants. But we're called to cleanse our hands and also to purify our hearts. That we're called to have unity of purpose from our heart and the exercise of that purpose in our hands. So we see the combination of hands and heart here. So I think here when we see chapter 2 and verse 8, where it speaks of lifting holy hands, um, it's speaking of uh, connecting our intent, our purpose, and our exercise. So we see, in fact, finally that we're called to do so without wrath and dissension. We can't imagine how many difficulties the early church would have had, how many challenges from different areas, whether it's examining how they were to, to live a Christian life, how they were to respond to Christ's call, whether it was to continue to follow the Jewish way or was it to give it up completely, how many questions they would have had and how much challenge they would have had from outside people who didn't understand and who weren't um, faithful. But we see that the prayers that we're called to give are not to be one in hate or in spite or in divisiveness, but we're called to have without wrath and dissension. Even in today's world where we look at politics and how divisive politics can be in this world, there are a few things that we joke about not talking about at parties, and religion and politics are those two things. Because you don't want to start a fight. You don't want to start a brawl in a nice evening party. And yet here we see, in fact, that praying without wrath and dissension is exactly what we're called to do. Because we're called to have that one purpose and that one vision in mind for leading that life in all godliness and dignity. And ultimately, that's the purpose that we're called to have and the vision that we're called to have in our prayers. So this call to prayer that we see in 1 Timothy, the call to prayer to a young leader who was trying to be um, encouraged, trying to be edified by Paul. There's so much in this letter. But at this beginning of chapter 2, we see how Timothy is to pray for those who are in power, as unpopular as they might be, as hurtful as they might be, as persecuting the church and those who believe they might be. We're continuing to pray for them and that we can live that life. For that message for Timothy is exactly the same message that we have today. We're called to have that life in all godliness and dignity and to use prayer to bring those petitions to God, but to do so in a combined, unified fashion, not divisive and not fractious but also working together so that we can have that common good and that common purpose. Paul himself says that he's appointed a preacher and an apostle in verse 7. He's emphasizing his qualifications. He's emphasizing his right to speak on this matter. 
He's, in fact, he's speaking from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as such, we are called to hear and to respond as well. So the question for each one of us is, where is our heart when we pray? Are we praying for this life of godliness and dignity? Are we praying for unity? Are we praying in solidification of purpose and mind? Or are we praying in a factious way? How are we praying? How do we respond to the call that Paul is making here in the letter to Timothy? Are we responding in one voice, with one hand and heart combined? Or are we responding separately, independently, um, as different and factious groups in the body? It's a call not only to prayer, but it's a call for each one of us to hear the responsibility that we have as followers, to hear the authority that Paul speaks with here in the letter to Timothy, and to recognize the call that he is making to Timothy and to us to have that life of prayer. If you need anything from us that we can help in bringing you back to a healthy life in prayer, if there's any way that we can encourage you, that we can build you up, that we can help you in your daily walk, that we can help you with this life of godliness and dignity that we're called to have as his followers. Won't you let us know as we stand and sing?